Well, good evening, church. Easter Sunday, 6.30, welcome to Ask Pastor Don, APD at cdview.org, with your questions. And this one uh, came in several times. I chose this particular uh, rendering of the question. I think it comes from a student. And it says this. Here's my question, Pastor Don. My professor thinks the Bible endorses slavery. I think he's right. Don't you? Well, I mean, I think that question feels a little bit loaded right from the start. Uh, Here's my answer. My view is this is a very popular misconception of both the teaching of the Bible and the spirit of Christianity. This question will take a few minutes to unpack, so it's the only one we're going to look at tonight. Let me try and explain. I think the source of confusion is found in texts, especially some New Testament texts, that give instructions to Christians who presently are slaves and to masters who presently owned slaves. Here are some examples. Let me just read them. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, that's slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So that's a tough text. And then 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, Paul writes again, Let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Wow. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Those are tough texts. And I'm just realizing I probably haven't answered the question yet. My brief answer to the questioner is no, believe it or not. No, I don't think the Bible endorses slavery, but I don't think that answer is going to be very satisfying unless I expand it a bit. So here are some principles. First, I do acknowledge, and I think we just read, I do acknowledge that the Bible regulates the practice of slavery even while denouncing it as sinful. And it does do that. Here's a text to be remembered in the background as you read those earlier texts regulating slaves and masters. 
consider these words from 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11, and they don't get read all that often. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now listen to this list. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. The uh, Christian Standard Version says slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed Lord with which I have been entrusted. So it's, you see that list of sins and right in there, slave traders. But it doesn't even just start in the New Testament, that forbidding. Here's one of the clearest texts denouncing slavery in the Old Testament. Exodus 21.16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Now, think about that. This, This is the prohibition of the whole nerve system of all slavery. Slavery in the Bible times usually wasn't race-based slavery, such as we've seen. It was the making of slaves, usually of those taken captive in war. Uh, Sometimes the kidnapping of children and the weak, those unbearably poor, would sometimes be forced to even sell family members to be slaves to those who had wealth and power. And now you, you read God's word, Exodus 21, the text covers all areas of slavery, then and now. The one who steals a man and sells him, 21.16. So that covers all forms of kidnapping, exporting, taking against their will, and selling of any person to another. Anyone who did any of those things, God says, was to be put to death. But there's more. That Exodus 21.16 text, it also covers the other end of slavery. It speaks not only to those who kidnapped and sold, it also speaks to those who would then buy and own whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. But here's the problem. We all know that such divine laws didn't end slavery. In fact, divine laws have never been enough to put an end to any sinful behavior. More instruction would be needed, and it would be hard. It would be hard to even count the number of biblical texts that went on to regulate all sorts of areas of slavery, to try and keep it humane. But none of, the, none, of, none of this implies an endorsement of slavery any more than all the biblical references on how Israel was to treat divorced women. That didn't imply that God favored divorce. Jesus makes it very clear that while it wasn't the unforgivable sin, God never approved of divorce. It was never included in God's original plan for a man and a wife. 
But as Jesus said, something more than God's command was needed. Once sin entered the human situation, human hearts became so darkened. And so God works with mankind as he finds him. He has to do that. Not as he's supposed to be. So in almost every area of biblical ethics, the Bible offers not only divine command, but also the hemming in of a humanity that's addicted to its own corruption, its own destructive behaviors. So yeah, there's a lot of texts regulating slavery in both the Old and New Testament, but they don't cancel out the biblical, the biblical edict that it's wrong, it's sinful, it's absolutely wrong in God's eyes. That's the first thing I'd like to say. Second, and I think this is important too, it's a huge interpretive blunder to assume that because God tells Christian slaves in the New Testament to submit to their masters, that he approves of those masters having slaves. Let me try and make that clear. God told the Israelites to submit and seek the good of the city in which they dwelt in exile in Babylon. Even though Babylon was totally godless and God was going to soon destroy it in judgment, God still told his people, you you submit. God tells godly wives who are struggling under the bullish authority of godless husbands. He tells wives, Christian wives, to respond with humble submissiveness. We, we don't even like reading these words. 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. These aren't godly men. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then, and then Paul tells Christians to treat with fear and reverence their Roman oppressive leaders. The emperor at that time, at least for some of that time, was Nero. And he was lining the streets at night with the burning bodies of Christians pitched with tar and setting them on fire. So my point here, and there are more examples that you could give, my point is this. Never make the foolish assumption that just because God tells A to submit to B, that God means God approves of B. It never works that way. Third, here's my third thought. All through the New Testament, the inbreaking life of Christ works to overturn slavery from the inside out. Remember I said the law? The law doesn't change people. Never has. Here's an example of this in, in uh, Philemon, verses 8 through 17. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. It's a runaway slave from Philemon. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. 
I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. Listen, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, not by law, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was departed from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him, receive him as you would receive me. I love the way Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back just as he would receive Paul himself. Paul was a highly esteemed Roman citizen. Receive him like that. But the real important phrase is found in Paul's words in verse 14, where he says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Not by compulsion, but by your own accord. So, so there's the heart. There's a heart of greed and exploitation that fuels slavery. The surest way to fight slavery, the command didn't do it, never did it. The surest way to fight slavery, especially in a culture that endorsed its practice, is to change the hearts of all those involved. Paul wants Philemon to treat his slave Onesimus as he he would treat Paul himself. And Paul wants this change to be rooted in Philemon's own heart so that Get this, so that the change would be a permanent change, not just one that Philemon would grudgingly submit to while Paul was still there in authority. Paul wants Philemon's heart changed. So he'll treat Onesimus like he treats Paul himself. That's the most thorough undoing of slavery. Fourth, and last point. The primary concern, even in unjust relationships, was to be the gospel effect of showing noticeably gracious behavior, even in wretched conditions. It's always been when Christians were the most mistreated that the distinctive light of the gospel had the best chance to shine. Doesn't justify the mistreatment at all. You can see how this applies to both slaves and masters in our opening two texts, but especially in Paul's words to Timothy. Listen to what he says again, 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, and I would underline here, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So technically, Paul doesn't say these masters were worthy of honor. He says slaves were to regard them as though worthy of honor. And the reason follows. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
Paul doesn't want there to be any excuse for unsaved masters not to see the difference the lordship of Jesus makes in any life, even the unjust, divinely forbidden conditions a Christian slave might be called to endure. See, because we've been so culturally conditioned to measure sound morality almost exclusively in terms of violations of our own rights. We've lost the idea that there might even be a higher principle, a higher calling. There can be greater divine ideals for all of us than just having our rights granted. There can be other measuring sticks for kingdom living and God's glory Paul says, even in unjust situations, Christians have the opportunity to put the glory on God. Fifth, we have a clear perspective of God on the issue of slavery, which, even as it still exists in some parts of the world, will, like all sin and evil, one day be obliterated in the light and life of Christ's new creation. In our Ephesians 6 text, Paul mentioned masters. He reminded them there was no favoritism. There was no partiality with God. He says in that ninth verse of Ephesians 6, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. But in some ways, the final word is reserved for this closing text. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, the image of the creator, here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Now we look forward to that day. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the way it speaks to issues. Guide our hearts as we read it and study it. Let your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.